We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. And we're really excited because we're bringing you part two of... Uh, Anne Boleyn on Women Worth Knowing. That's right. And <laughs> as you said last week, she's a tutor. She's the second wife of Henry VIII and mm-hmm. mainly known for being rather notorious because, you know, many thought she was his paramour, but she wasn't. No, that's not exactly how it went down. No. You got you to really dig here to get the true facts. So that's what we've been trying to give you is a mm-hmm. fuller and more accurate picture of who Anne was. So when we last uh, left Anne... She was, um, how do you say it, inadvertently the instigator of Henry's crusade against the Catholic yes. properties yes. She, in, yeah. in England. But she, unlike so many around her, you know, so many of the men in office and had posi- that had positions around Henry, she actually had a very sincere motivation for what she was doing because she was, you know, uh, very reform-minded and yes. loved God and wanted to see the church. And I read an art, I read uh, a story of Anne Boleyn where she used to read out loud to Henry VIII the writings of Martin Luther. Oh, yes. I had seen that as well. So, I mean, we're talking a gal who really felt like God had raised her up to promote, like, the true gospel, the authority of the word of God. And we know Henry, of course, was not spiritually minded, but (laughs) he tolerated. Right. And Henry VIII was also a musician, as we mentioned before. And so was Martin Luther. And that was also an in. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, you know, musicians like to hear musicians and— wasn't it a mighty fortress? Yeah, he wrote. Luther wrote mighty fortresses. Luther are God. wrote, mm-hmm. and then we mentioned that um, Henry VIII is credited with writing Greensleeves. He played the guitar, the lute. Uh, I think it was the mandolin also. Wow. So he played these different instruments and loved music. So um, Anne would read him yeah. the writings of Henry VIII, and as you said last um, writings of session, Luther, mm-hmm. you said also that she defended. Tyndale. Yeah, she was really trying to go to bat for the reformers as much as she could using her position and influence. Mm-hmm. And again, like I mentioned before, this is really important. We saw this with Marguerite and Jean d'Albret and Renee of France. Uh, these women really were putting them their, themselves on the line, really, um, for <laughs> the sake of the gospel. And they didn't have to do this. They could have had, you know, just nice little um, cushioned, pleasurable lives um, in comfort there in the palace. But they really— were felt like God had given them a burden for the sake of the gospel, for for the for the Lord to use the influence they had for Christ, which was really pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, yeah, like I said, so what we what we left off with there was the fact that now that the Act of Supremacy has been passed, and you know Henry has now transferred the authority of the Church to himself as the King of England. Um, changes were being made in the church. And Anne and uh, Thomas Cranmer, Thomas Cromwell, and others as reform-minded sympathizers, they uh, thought, wow, what an opportunity to uh, remove a lot of superstition and, you know, just um, bad doctrine. Again, promoting the translation of the Bible, get rid of a lot of these, you know, um, ne- you know, corrupt, corrupt negative Catholic practices that are going on here, get rid of the Pope's influence. And part of that involved getting rid of the monasteries. And so Anne's whole thought was, hey, let's use all of these resources. Let's divert all of these resources into helping the poor, helping the people, because she's thinking biblically minded, like that would be the heart of God, would be to use these for 
the kingdom for the sake of those in need. But um, even but, so, that's going beyond reform. <laughs> you know, because reform means we want to fix up this. We mm-hmm. want to correct this. And instead, they just want to do away with it mm-hmm. instead of correcting it. Right. Right. And so and, and just removing all of that. Mm-hmm. But the problem was, uh, again, Henry, as Cheryl mentioned in the last episode, Henry and, of course, some of these other advisors and counselors, they just saw this as a great opportunity to cash in on the Catholic Church. Basically, let's Remove all of them so that we can take their palaces, their money, their finances. Unfortunately, what happened was Cromwell, who had been a fan, a supporter, uh, right there with Anne, lockstep in trying to promote reform and change and remove Catholicism from England, Cromwell turns on her because he had his own ideas for what to do with those monastery funds. He didn't like Anne's idea. And that that, and also Jane Seymour had now come into the court of Henry VIII. Yeah. So there's some other things that right. are starting to shift and here. Henry, Cromwell's his right-hand person. When Henry wants something done, because Wolseley by this time is out because— uh, Cromwell and Cranmer now. Right. <laughs> yeah. He, he had Wolseley executed because he wanted Hampton Court. Mm, yeah. So <laughs> now he's leaning in and leaning on mm-hmm. Cromwell to get anything and everything that he wants accomplished done. Right. So this is why partially this and then Anne has a miscarriage. And so she's not able to— Yeah, so this is, yeah, all of these things are starting to, whether Mm -hmm. Anne realizes it or not, they're starting to kind of rise up against her. Right. And so, and again, she had been a little pickly. Like, part of her attraction to Henry was being hard to get. mm -hmm. And now playing the hard to get (laughs) when you're married Mm -hmm. is considered an offense to, an affront to the king. Didn't work as well in her favor. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, too. And so, you know— Whatever happened between Anne and Cromwell there, where he engineered uh, her downfall, as he wrote to, you know, the Habsburg uh, Mm -hmm. ambassador, sorry, Uh, Henry himself became a real schmuck here. He uh, believed the false charges that had been drummed up against Anne, that she had been unfaithful and was in collusion, um, some kinds of political intrigue. These were false charges, but he went ahead and believed them. He refused to hear Anne's defense. And a lot of this, yeah, like you said— kind of had to do with what was already going on here behind the scenes. Um, she was getting older. Anna's in her 30s by now, and she hadn't produced a male heir. I mean, you know, that's not old, but still back then, you know, at the time, he's thinking, okay, she hasn't given me a male heir. There was a miscarriage. Didn't they have—I think they had an infant son who died. I and think, that, yes. And then also the only living child was Elizabeth, her daughter. And also, if a, if a woman gave birth to a stillborn, it was considered a curse, and maybe mm. that she was cursed. That superstition but again. I, but I do believe, too, that he, it was convenient for him. It was also very convenient. He was tired of her. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been to Hever Castle, and I was asking you earlier. So Hever Castle is in England. It's not too far out of London. And this was the home of Anne Boleyn's family. Mm-hmm. And in Hever Castle, they have copies of the letters that she wrote to Henry where she is begging for her life and Mm. she's appealing to him before God. They also have her journal and her journal has prayer after prayer. And what you find through these letters is that she begins to resolve herself to death. You know, at first Mm. they're protesting. Yeah, of course. You know, what is happening and the accusations. And she is talking about her innocence and how faithful she's been and what she's done, you know, and she she writes and she wrote prolifically. Mm. And after a time, she just begins to say, 
you know, I my fate is in the hands of God, whatever mm. God says. And she gives herself, you could see it through the progression of the letters, wow. more like, I know you won't listen, but still, I w- you will answer to God for these things. I mean, it's it's pretty wow. strong. Wow. And it's pretty, like, godly. Yeah. You wow. Know? Interesting. Mm-hmm. But she did. I mean, she absolutely said, I'm absolutely. But, and she wrote to him because he would not allow her an audience. Yeah, exactly. He wouldn't even see her. He wouldn't even hear her defense and her only. Uh, because when when Thomas turned against her and Henry turned against her, the whole court turned against her. Of course. Because it wasn't popular to like her at that time. Mm-hmm. Because anyone who yeah. associated with her could be also in jeopardy. Yeah, you might get, yeah, you might be executed mm-hmm. for treason or something if there was any kind of connection there. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, he man. had killed Thomas Wolseley. So already oh, yeah. seen a precedent. Like, <laughs> yes, he's not safe. He wanted that castle. He took that castle. Yeah. You know, Hampton Court. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, this is, yeah, and it's really up, she's really up against it here. And that kind of explains the pre- some of the prejudice against her. Even what Cheryl mentioned, that's an interesting point that she was still trying to play hard to get after she was married and that didn't work very well. But again, too, he had already turned his roving eye to Jane Seymour, as we mentioned. And so this, again, this all came together at a nice, convenient time for Henry. And so, and and Jane was young and like, you know, probably had a good lot of childbearing years ahead of her. And so he's thinking, good, I can get an heir in this way. So, Mm -hmm. um, and again, she denied all the charges, like Cheryl said. She protested her innocence right up until her execution and declared her support for the king. At the mm-hmm. chopping block, which yes, is pretty she remarkable. Yes, I she mean, did. gosh, kind of mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. remember Tyndale when he said, Lord, open the Eng- King of England's eyes. It's but like, wow. think about how drastic this is that he chooses to have her beheaded. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but actually that was in those days considered a mercy. Yeah, probably to not be tortured and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And maybe because she was a queen, you have to do it yes. kind of clean and but quick. But you did read that the blade was dull. Yuck. Of uh, the axe. Oh, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, I want to think about that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it was a very painful. It was gruesome. Yes. yes. Now, it is interesting. Cromwell turned on her. And like mm-hmm. I said, he was proud to admit it, apparently. But Archbishop Cranmer actually gave a veiled defense of Anne before the king. It was kind of weak, but you could see from what he was writing that he was very conflicted about this. He was compelled to support the verdict and void the marriage because it's like, what do I do? This is the king commanding mm-hmm. me to do this. Right. But he did write a letter to Henry, and he said of Anne, I never had better opinion in a woman than I had in her, which takes me to think that she should not be culpable. I loved her not a little for the love which I judged her to bear toward God and his gospel. So, I mean, really, out of the two, Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell, Cranmer was a little more noble-minded, and he recognized, like, this is this is not right. This is an innocent woman. Right. But again, it was it was kind of a weak defense, but it was there. The fact that he was reminding Henry, this woman is loyal, faithful, and she has honored God. And so uh, sadly, of course, like like we just said, Anne was uh, beheaded at the Tower of London, April 19, 1536. If you go to the Tower of London, you can see the little green space where it happened. Um, I think actually, wasn't Lady Jane? Well, never mind. We're going to get to that later. <laughs> but it is telling. This is interesting. One uh, historian said, Anne's freedom of manner had caused malicious gossip, which would long be remembered against her, while the generosity of her charity and her concern for the new religion, for the reformers, was far more easily forgotten. 
And so that is really a fuller picture there. Again, she was very much misunderstood. And, you know, she did rub some people the wrong way. And you also, too, the Catholic sympathizers were against her. Absolutely. And so, it, you know, these charges were very convenient. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. kind of Henry was interested in somebody else. He needed an excuse. And, you know, uh, Catherine Aragon had been a very popular figure. Yes, that was another point. In England. Yeah. And also with Spain. And so Spain was very upset because Catherine of Aragon was from Spain and had been a political maneuver. Oh, and Henry had nothing to say when Catherine gave her defense before he divorced her. Mm -hmm. He had nothing to say to her because she was a faithful wife and an Mm -hmm. honorable woman. It was like, man, he really. (laughs) So with Anne, the forces that be did not want him to just divorce Anne. Yeah. They wanted to incriminate her Mm -hmm. and do away with her because they felt like she also was the— a Protestant influence on Henry, yeah, too. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And it should, it should be noted, while Anne did not give Henry the male heir he desired, she did have a daughter, like we've mentioned, Elizabeth I, who ironically would be the longest living and most influential of his children. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Paul Zoll says that Elizabeth, this is interesting. This is just kind of a little shout out quickly to Elizabeth. We're not doing like a whole episode on her, but uh, just for her perspective. Uh, Elizabeth was a Protestant in her genes because her mother was Anne Boleyn. She also was at least to some degree a Protestant by conviction, although she was more conservative or rather more cautious. In addition, she was educated by Protestant tutors and taught from Protestant texts. In fact, when she was a young girl, she actually um, translated Marguerite de Navarre's Mirror of the Sinful Soul. So you see that connection continuing there. Uh, But Elizabeth was understandably inclined to conduct herself in a more politically expedient manner (laughs) and avoid religious controversy. I mean, she's watched all of this go down, even with her older sister, Mary. I mean, there's going to be a lot. She was being watched in the court. I mean, her mother was was executed. She had to be so careful. Very, very vigilant. And so Mm -hmm. even though she did lean Protestant, she didn't take a super strong stand for the Reformation. She was kind of a middle of the road. And so historian Bruce Shelley says that she actually gave the Church of England— the character that it has now, which is, uh, quote, neither Roman nor Reformed. It's kind of in the middle there. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what we see today. And so in the end, um, one historian said that it was through Anne that the Reformation really first took root in England. And whether people realize it or not, that's true. Because if Henry hadn't wanted Anne so much, he never would have removed the Pope from his position and become the head of the church in England. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Anne Boleyn. And so she really did get the ball rolling, whether people liked it or not, whether they would, you know, really um, acknowledge that or not. That's what happened. So, I mean, you want to talk about the Reformation in England. It really does start with a woman, Anne Boleyn. It does. And she is considered very, very controversial. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, even the women who came after her that, you know, that we'll be talking about mm. Catherine Parr, Anne Askew, and um, Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey. Um, they were also uh, considered very controversial. Oh, very. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, I, I've always felt, ever since I went to Hever Castle and saw Anne's letters, that the charges were trumped up. Oh, yeah. You know, definitely. Yeah. Without a doubt. He was tired. I mean, after all, this is a man who married— uh, six times. Yeah. And, you know, and then one of the wives was a political arrangement. It oh, was Anna, Anna Cleves. Cleves. Oh, yeah, yes. that was awkward. I think we mentioned her before. She was connected to somebody else we talked about. Yes. And um, I remember when I read that when 
she came, he complained that she smelled bad. Mm-hmm. And so he couldn't divorce her. And he couldn't have her killed because she was from Germany and the he needed the political oh, yes. and was, yeah. alliance. Again, by this time, he was having trouble with um, uh, France and he was having trouble with uh, Spain. He wasn't mm-hmm. a very good uh, international politician, especially no. killing. Uh, yeah. Elizabeth was much better. Yes. <laughs> and so what happened is um, with Anne of Cleves, this is interesting. He had to try to pacify her and yet. Divorce her mm-hmm. because they were married. Um, how, how do it, it, by proxy, right before she showed up? Before she showed yeah. up. So once he showed up, he was like, "Oh, Uh-oh. her pictures it's, it's, were much more flattering than what she was." You know, because that would be like sketches that mm-hmm. they sent to him. So what he did though is he gave her his Richmond Palace because he was no longer living in the Richmond Palace. He had taken over Hampton Court. Mm-hmm. And this is before Buckingham Palace was not— No, that wasn't even Mm-mm. twinkle in his yes. eye. <laughs> it was Whitehall Palace at that around. point. Yeah. And Whitehall Palace and then, of course, um, Hampton Court are both on the Thames River. So he could get there. Uh, and the number one way of transport in those days was by boat mm-hmm. on the on the rivers the Thames, yeah. in England, especially the Thames. So anyway, he ends up— um, giving her Richmond Palace, but they said that he would meet with her and they would smoke, drink, and play poker together. Oh, my gosh. So she, she was one of the guys. Okay. Yes, she was not necessarily a woman worth knowing, but her story is pretty remarkable. Very interesting. I mean, all of the, Yeah, Henry's life was very colorful, to say the least. So I, I believe he's one of the most highlighted in English schools. That's the Tudor period is what they really focus on. Oh, absolutely. Because of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also during the Tudor period, because it's also became a type of architecture. Yes. Which, uh, we, there, so it's also called Waddle and Daub. But what you've got with the Tudor look is you've got like the uh, plaster with the wood beams the that exposed show. Exposed beams, And yeah. then Waddle and Daub is actually... Um, uh, dung, horse dung or cow dung. Lovely. That they would uh, mix with mud and put in between uh, the wood and the plaster mm. so that there would be um, insulation. Mm-hmm. So it's a form of insulation. Man. And so th- you've got the yeah. Tudor style, which was inspired by, of course, you know, Henry and, Henry and the Tudors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The Tudors. Yeah. And so, and that was the time. But, you know, again, the Tudor, which um, London used to be all Tudor. There's very few Tudor buildings that mm. still exist, actually. there. Yeah, even like where my parents lived across the river from Greenwich. Greenwich was, it used to be one of Henry's palaces. There's not really much of a remnant no. of that. Yes. So it's sad. Yes, but, but it's off the Thames too. But the Tudor style, um, when you had the Great Fire in London. Mm, that's right. In the 1600s, um, all most of the Tudor buildings, because again— they're made out of oh, bottle like and daub, wood which is and, highly yeah. flammable, <laughs> and wood. And so they, they burned up in, in the Great Fire of London. So those are all just like fun facts. Yeah, sorry, just throwing some extra bits in here for you. Again, I told you, we love England and the Tudors. I know, we're going to nerd out here yes. for a few weeks, folks. Sorry about that. But I think, Cheryl, you had something else you wanted to close us off with here I for a few minutes. I did. I don't know how shortly I can do it, but we're really excited because Stephanie Good who listens to this podcast, um, said this, I just want to share how much I've enjoyed the Women Worth Knowing podcast. It has encouraged me to study the stories of women who came before me. Ah, Yay, Yay, Stephanie. But Stephanie is also a writer. Oh. And so she said, this desire is what inspired me. Now, isn't this incredible? It inspired her to interview 
this woman named Lois Landis, who is in her late 70s or early 80s, and is in her local church, and to write a story that I am sending. So she says, you know, feel free to do what you want with um, Lois's story. But I hope that inspires others. If you know a woman worth Mm. knowing, why not interview them? Yes, it's a great idea. And send us some information. And so um, Stephanie grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And after um, high school, she completed a program in Costa Rica called Vida 220, which— oh, I love Costa Rica. That's yes, right. you that's lived awesome. In I Costa did live Rica in Costa Rica. Too. So this Great. was started by a Mennonite couple from the United States wow. in the early 2000s. And um, this is how she grew. So um, after training, she lived—this is Stephanie, lived in Guatemala City in Guatemala— I think Stephanie's a woman worth knowing. Yeah, wow, she's done quite a bit too. <laughs> right, and lived in a um, lived in the church in a rough, impoverished neighborhood in Zona for six months in Guatemala, wow. ministering to the people there and serving in whatever ways she could. Um, however, she says, I don't know if I have, I would have had as much confidence to complete the year if I had not known that many people had gone before me and. Two of those people were Dick and Lois Landis. Mm -hmm. And Lois is the woman that she interviewed and wrote about. So Lois and her husband, Dick, grew up together in a Mennonite community near Chalmersburg, Pennsylvania, in the 40s and 50s. Mm. Their parents were friends, later attending the same church together. Um, Lois, at 12, remembers asking for the forgiveness of her sins Mm. at a revival meeting. Nobody was there saying, have devotions every day. Talk to Jesus. He's your personal Savior now. Mm. And I don't feel angry or bitter, this is Lois, about Mm. that because there was the Bible. I could have reached out on my own and done that, but I think it would have been helpful to have someone mentoring me or discipling me. It was just very acceptable that you should accept Jesus at revival meetings in November and then go through the instruction class and be baptized. Mm. Um, Lois um, and Dick— dated other people in high school, which was probably healthy. But when Lois was a senior in high school, Dick called her to ask her out, and they officially began dating. They were married at 19 and 20 Mm -hmm. and would go on to have three sons while they were still in their 20s. They lived in Chalmersburg, and Dick worked as an electrician and a part-time for his brother-in-law, who was a silo builder. Um, at this point in their relationship with the Lord, they were lukewarm and kind of on the fence. Mm. Then one extremely windy day, Dick was on top of a silo, and he became afraid, and he promised God that he would serve him if he would save him. Oh, it's like Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he came home and told Lois he wanted to go to a prayer meeting at church that evening, um, a service they had never been to. And just telling the people we want to get on the road of following the Lord and tell people about Jesus. There weren't many people at the service that evening, but the pastor and his wife invited them back to their house and prayed with them. Later that night, Dick and Lois also started praying together as they knelt beside the bed and offered their lives in service to God. Dick began to teach Sunday school class, and Lois continued um, in her mothering duties. At that point, there wasn't a lot to quote that the women were doing in church. There wasn't even a women's Bible study. Hmm. So at this point, the Mennonite Mission Board established an Eastern Mennonite Board of Missions and Charities that was based in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they had um, established that in 1914. And so um, the Mission Board uh, decided to become involved with global um, missions. Mm. 
And that's when um, they offered um, Dick and Lois the opportunity to go to Guatemala. But they thought we're not qualified. Um, They're probably not even going to ask us to go. But Dick said, Lord, if you want us to go have the ministry, invite us. Mm. And after a while, they don't remember how long, um, they wrote a letter saying they would be interested in being missionaries. On January 1st, 1967, um, Dick was ordained to the ministry at their local church. And on January 2nd, they boarded their train from Baltimore to Miami um, uh, to go to— um, to to make their way to San Jose, okay. Costa, uh, Costa, Rica. Costa Rica, yeah, yeah, to receive a year of okay. Spanish language training, nice. and their third son was born the next October. And Lois oh. remarked that there were at least two hundred other missionaries headed for Central and South America, and said that they learned a lot more than Spanish that year mm-hmm. by living in community with Christians from so many other denominations. I mean, think about that. Nineteen sixty-seven. That was about. Um, about 12 years after um, Jim Elliott had lost his oh, life. Oh, yes, out in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So our vision up to that point, this is Lois, was tunnel vision as far as other denomination and things. We didn't have an opportunity to work with other de- denominations. Hmm. So the first Mennonite missionaries to Guatemala ever were Dick and Lois, and they hmm. traveled there Great. at the end of 1967 and began their time living in an Indian village near the regions of Coban and San Pedro Karcha? Okay. Karcha. Wait, did you say Copan or Coban? Coban. Oh, okay. Copan is somewhere I've heard of. Anyway, go ahead. They <laughs> stayed in the city for three weeks and finalized their preparations, including buying mattresses and a Toyota Land Rover that the mission board had given them money to purchase, a sturdy vehicle, Lois called it. Traveling north, they, tra- they quickly learned that the road was not yet paved. <laughs> so they drove on the yep. rough road for seven hours. Man, the eight-hour um, trip. The first people who helped Dick and Lois become acclimated and get their bearings were the Assemblies of God missionaries they had met at language school. They connected with various people they knew in the community, and um, the people showed them the local grocery store and helped them to get a house where they could stay. Lois mentions that they did not always have electricity mm. in San Pedro. Um and that the only other North American missionaries in that area were Mormons. Oh, my gosh. The Wild. missionaries with whom they had already made friends, including Assembly of God, South Southern Baptists, and Nazarenes, were about 20 minutes away in Coban. After eight months of living in this community, another missionary couple was sent there and began to live in Dick and Lois's house while Dick and Lois moved to Coban. Lois remembers the walls of the living room and the house being three different colors, green, pink, and blue, and that her kitchen sink was like poured concrete, and there was a a pila, a washing sink, okay, in the back of the house where clothes could be washed by hand. Yeah. One blessing included the fact that they had running water, plumbing inside, a ringer-type washing machine, <laughs> and electricity. So not long after the mission board asked Dick to be the director of the Mennonite mission work in Guatemala, meaning that they would need to move to the capital, Guatemala City. They began a small church in Zona, uh, Zone 11, in a region called La Brigada. Mm-hmm. Lois remembers that because of Dick's role as director, he was often working with lawyers and bankers downtown to begin and maintain the program. I'll let Lois tell the next part of this story. <laughs> Dick went out there one day 
I think the Lord sent him there. I know the Lord sent him out there. And he was walking around that area and realized that people didn't have water. So he rented, I think he spent $50 and rented a helicopter to take him over the area Mm. to see where there was water. And he saw right next to the La Brigada area, a rose farm. This man, his name was Pepe Carlos. He grew roses for exporting. And so Dick went over to see him one day and he, Pepe Carlos, told him he saw the helicopter up there and he wasn't very happy about it. What's that helicopter doing up there looking at my farm? So Dick was going to see if somehow water couldn't come over to La Brigada area from his farm. And the local municipalidad found out about it. Yes. And they wanted to put water in. So they did. Mm -hmm. Well, at least they got water. Love that. Practical. Practical ministry. There is so much more. So we'll mention uh, more Mm -hmm. of this story maybe on our, our next Uh, podcast, but we're out of time for today. So we'll talk about the tutors and we'll keep talking about Lois for a while. Stephanie, thank you again for sending that in. And I hope that Stephanie writing the story, interviewing her neighbor, I love this, inspires you. There are women all around us worth knowing. Mm -hmm. You might even be that woman. It's true. And we would love to hear your story. So write us again at wwk at cccm.com. And we are reading these, and we do hope to write back to you and just say thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing. That's right. (laughs) And until we're back with uh, more about Lois Landis and the The Tudors. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We just want to say thanks for joining us. That's right. Bye. Bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.